Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, I know because of that, many of you are joining us online today doing some watch parties. So special shout out to you that are joining us online today. Uh, well, today is a big day. And that's because we're actually going to be finishing up our summer sermon series in the book of Exodus. Uh, over the past couple of months, we've been working through the first half of this book. And after my sermon today, we're actually going to pause in Exodus and come back and study the second half next summer. And so next week, uh, we're actually going to begin a two-week mini-series on justice, politics, and the gospel. I'm really excited about those timely sermons. I'm sure many of you are as well. Um, but for today, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 17 and 18. So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles and get there. If you're new with us, just to catch you up to speed, so far in our study this summer, we've seen uh, that God's people Israel were enslaved in Egypt to Pharaoh. We saw the very harsh slavery that they were under in the first couple of weeks. And then in chapters 3 and 4, God raised up Moses, told him that he'd seen Israel's oppression, that he was going to set them free from slavery. And then over the course of the last several weeks, we've, got, we've seen God do just that. God brought 10 plagues on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, including the death of the firstborn son. And we saw that Israel, they were spared from that, those plagues, and specifically the last one through the thing called the Passover. And ultimately that led to Pharaoh releasing the Israelites from slavery. However, when they actually got on the move, Pharaoh changed his mind. He pursued God's people into the Red Sea, and God swallowed up the Egyptians in the Red Sea, completely setting the people of Israel free from their bondage in Egypt. In the last couple of weeks and today, we're starting to see what life after Egypt looked like for them. What does this new life of freedom from slavery, what does it mean for them? What are they to do with their newfound freedom? And so I want to take a moment right here at the beginning to consider this idea of freedom. Uh, it's instilled in us, from, as, as really as Americans, from an early age to love freedom. We love the Bill of Rights, the, the idea of the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, to assemble, to petition, all of those things. Also in our culture, personal freedoms continue to, to dominate the headlines. I mean, just think about the rise of personal sexual freedoms over the last few decades. The reality is we all love the idea of freedom. It's natural for us as humans to desire personal liberty, the freedom to make our own decisions and to not be in bondage. However, I stand on the authority of the Bible this morning when I say that we often miss what true freedom is. We think that freedom a lot of times is having, is having no restraints, is having no rules. We think like the great 21st century cultural prophet Miley Cyrus has said, it's our party, we can do what we want to, right? That's what we often think. That's how we often think about freedom in our culture. However, as Pastor Tim Keller has said, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but rather finding the right ones. I've heard it explained this way. Imagine a fish inside of a fishbowl and, and kind of just put your mind inside the mind of that fish. Maybe you, could, you would know, be thinking, you know, I'd sure like to get outside of this bowl, look at this whole other world on the outside. But true freedom for that fish isn't getting outside. And I know that because if it does get outside, it's going to die pretty quickly because there's no water there. So freedom for that fish is not found in having no restrictions, no restrictions at all. It's found in having the right ones. And that's the same for us today. We have this cultural illusion of freedom that's all about personal liberty and doing whatever we want, kind of like it's our party. But the Bible says something very different about freedom. According to the Bible, freedom serves a bigger purpose than just making individual decisions in your life. And so as we study uh, Exodus 17 and 18 today, we're going to see a very simple main idea, and that's that God frees his community of faith on purpose. It's going to be the main idea that's going to dictate our time today. As I just mentioned, God's people Israel, they've just been freed from slavery in Egypt. And the rest of Exodus, as we've seen so far and as we're going to see again uh, next summer, the rest of uh, Exodus is answering the question, what comes next? What is the purpose in their freedom? 
And so as we study 17 and 18, we're going to make three observations, three points as we go about freedom. And I'm going to go along these as we kind of go. The first one is that we'll see that God frees his community of faith and remains with them. Secondly, we'll see that God frees his community of faith to proclaim his salvation. And lastly, we'll see that God frees his community of faith to be healthy. Uh, and as we'll see, this is even, even beyond just Israel, this is really important. These are very three foundational truths for the church today. And so this is another week where we're going to be covering a lot of scripture. Uh, you could really say that this sermon could be split up into three separate sermons today. Uh, so that obviously means that we have a lot of room to cover. So buckle up and let's dive in. Chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Let's read. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so we're going to stop and camp out here for just a moment. Uh, verses 8 to 16 here quickly describe uh, a battle that takes place as Israel is encamped at Rephidim. And we're really not given much detail about the battle itself or, or why the Amalekites even attacked in the first place. But as uh, verse 16 says, the Amalekites are a people that Israel will continually war against in the Old Testament. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen this grumbling and complaining within the people. There have been these internal wrestles and these internal battles going on in Israel. But this is the first time post-Egypt that they face an external enemy. And again, remember, remember for context, Israel has just been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're now working through the wilderness as a newly reestablished nation, and they already have another nation coming from the outside to attack them. And so if you just think, you can only imagine maybe the fear or the loathing that some of the people were experiencing here. Again, they've just exited Egypt a few chapters earlier. Uh, but what Scripture does make very clear with the details that were given is that God is still the one fighting their battles. And that leads me to our first observation, our first point for today. That's that God frees and remains with his community of faith. God was the one, after all, who heard their cries in the first place, who raised up Moses and promised that he'd free them, who brought ten plagues on Egypt, who brought them out of Egypt, who split the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry ground, and who ultimately swallowed up the Egyptians in the sea, providing salvation for his people. And the beautiful thing that we see here in this battle, in Exodus chapter 17, is that God doesn't abandon his people after he's freed them. God freed his people from Egypt, and as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and as we see through this battle today, God remains with them. Uh, we see this in verses 10 and 11. Look back there. It says, So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So, so admittedly, this seems a little bit weird on the surface, right? Moses sends Joshua out into battle, and then he just takes the staff of God up to the top of the hill and just lifts his hands up. And verse 11 says that whenever his hand and the staff are lifted, Israel wins, and whenever they are lowered, Amalek wins. Uh, commentators and pastors have pointed out that this posture of Moses going to the top of the hill, lifting the staff of God up, it's a posture of intercession. He's interceding between God and the people of Israel. And so when Moses lifts his staff to God, asking God to, to, to really fight for his people, Israel prevails, and whenever he stops, Amalek prevails. 
So, so, so what's the point here, right? The point is that God is with his people and fights for his people. The point isn't in the lifting up of the staff. It's not in the lifting up of hands. The power isn't in the lifting up of the staff. The power is in the God that the staff is being lifted to. And God confirms that in verses 14 to 16. Look back there. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and write it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so God is telling Moses and the Israelites here, Write this down. Remember that your victory didn't come in your own power, it came from me. Again, showing us this idea that I mentioned, that God frees his people, his community of faith, and he remains with them. God had freed Israel from Egypt, and he remained with his people, continuing to fight their battles in the wilderness, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And so for us as Christians, we know that this idea is true for us as well. As we've seen over the last couple of months, the story of Exodus isn't just a story about God saving Israel from Egypt. It's also picturing the greater story of what God did for all of his people in freeing them from the bondage of sin through the gospel. The story of Exodus really is a snapshot of the entire story of the Bible. The story of the gospel of the Bible is that God created humanity in his image to be in relationship with him and to worship him. But instead of doing that, each of us have rebelled against God. We've sinned against him. And as Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are dead in our sin, following our fleshly desires. Romans chapter 3 actually tells us that the consequences for that sin against God is eternal death. We all deserve death and separation from God because of our sin. But the good, the good news of the gospel is that God made a way for us to be freed from that bondage to sin. Like Israel was in physical bondage in Egypt, we are all inherently by birth in bondage to our sin. We're enslaved to things like sex, money, the approval of others, self-righteousness, just to name a few. But the gospel is that God, being rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus to save us from it. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life that we failed to live. He died on the cross to pay for our sin. 2 Corinthians actually says that he who knew no sin, being Jesus, became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus becomes our sin. He pays our debt. He takes the wrath of God on himself that through faith in his death and resurrection, we could become new, we could have a restored relationship with God, and we could actually be given the righteousness of God. So simply put, the gospel is Jesus in our place. He bears our, he bears our sin on the cross, and he gives us his perfection through faith. And in the same way that God freed Israel from slavery to Egypt, God has freed us, his church, his people now, from our slavery to sin. But also the good news of this first observation is that God doesn't abandon us after he saves us. He remains with us like he did for Israel. And you know, oftentimes, you know, we can really get this wrong. Uh, maybe some of you grew up and you have a similar story to me. Maybe you grew up viewing Christianity the way I did. Uh, I grew up in a church that did altar calls. And I want to be very clear, that's a good and right thing. However, for me, maybe some of you can relate to that. Uh, I had a skewed view of what Christianity was. My understanding of Jesus was that he was the one that saved you. You know, you basically, you walk an aisle, you pray a prayer, and that's basically where everything ended. I thought that Jesus was the one who makes you a Christian. And then from there, you're kind of just left to be the best person you can be, hoping that in the end, God will let you into heaven. I really view Jesus as the one who gets you into the party, but I completely miss what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, we see the idea that Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. See, I understood for years that Jesus was the author of my faith, but it wasn't until much later that I understood that Jesus was also the perfecter of my faith. So Jesus doesn't just give us a ticket to heaven and then say, deuces, see you in 50 years. Uh, Jesus remains with us. Again, he frees his community of faith and he remains with us. He says that explicitly in Matthew 28. Uh, when Jesus may, gives the Great Commission, we're all familiar with it in Matthew 28. He tells us to make disciples of all nations, 
and teach them to obey him. But then at the end, he comforts us. He comforts his disciples by saying, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so the great truth here is that God frees us and remains with us. He doesn't leave us to be dependent on ourselves when we're saved. And, and there are many things that we could say about God being with us. Something we talk about here a lot is the Bible. Uh, God's word written down in the Bible is how we know God. And we actually see this hinted at in verse 14, where God tells Moses to write down what happened as a memorial in a book. But I want to take a moment here to speak on two other awesome ways that God is with us and for us right now as I speak. So when we think of God being with us, we see in the New Testament that for Christians, God is with us through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says that he is with us always in Matthew 28, we obviously know that he's not physically standing here. Like we don't see him right now. Uh, no, he's talking about his spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives in every follower of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 says that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is God with us. He's the one who brings conviction to our hearts when we're tempted to sin. He's the one who prays for us when we don't know what to pray, as Romans chapter 8 says. He's the one who empowers us to fight our sinfulness and walk in the new life, to put on the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us is the proof that God remains with his people and fights for his people. And at the same time, there's another great truth that I want us to see from here, and that's that God is for us through the intercession of Jesus. As I mentioned, when, when Moses was on the hill with his arms and the staff of God raised, he was interceding before God on behalf of the people. And God moves through the prayer and the intercession of Moses. But the New Testament tells us that today, as Christians, we have the truer and better Moses. In the same way that Moses interceded for the people, Romans chapter 8 tells us that Jesus, right now, is interceding before God the Father for his people, for the church, for us. And, that, and the context all around that verse in Romans chapter 8 is about the spiritual battle that God's people face. In Romans 8, Paul is showing that nothing can bring eternal harm to the Christian because Jesus is interceding for us. So if we sin, if we fall short, he's there to say, I've paid for that. If we face persecution, danger, or the sword, it can't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because he's interceding for us. He's already won our eternal life for us. And so Christian, let both of these truths be of ultimate encouragement to you today. God did not free us and then tell us to just go figure it out ourselves. No, God remains with us like he did for Israel in the wilderness. God is with us through the Holy Spirit and for us through the intercession of Jesus. Uh, there's definitely a lot more that could be said along these lines, but we do have an entire another chapter to cover today, uh, and the scene's going to shift pretty quickly. So look to chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel. How the, Lord had brought them out of, how, how, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. 
Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So like I said, uh, here the scene uh, obviously shifts quite a bit. We went from a battle to a family reunion the next day. Uh, Again, this is a scene where we don't get a ton of detail. And the reason for that is that the emphasis of chapter 18 is on Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. In verses 8 to 12, we see Jethro and Moses, they sit down and catch up. In verse 8, Moses tells Jethro everything that God had done for Israel in Egypt. And so that would basically be like Moses taking every single sermon that we've preached this entire summer and telling the entire story in one conversation. Ultimately, as verse 8 says, he tells Jethro about how the Lord had delivered them. And then in verses 9 to 12, we see Jethro's response to that. In verse 9, Jethro rejoices over the story of God's salvation. Then in verse 10, Jethro praises God, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you. And then in verse 11, Jethro confessed that the Lord is the one true God. So do you catch what's happening here? Moses tells this story of God's salvation, and Jethro responds by praising God and confessing that he is the one and only true God. Commentators have debated whether or not this is the exact moment that Jethro converted, but I tend to think yes. This appears to be the first time that Jethro confesses that the God of Israel is the one true God, and it's right after Moses shares the story of God's salvation. As the text says, Jethro, he was a Midianite, which means that he did not worship the God of Israel. However, it's very clear that in this moment, that's changed for Jethro. After Moses shares the story of God's deliverance, Jethro uh, serves and worships God, as we see in verse 12. And so really, this whole interaction between Jethro and Moses, it brings to light our second observation, our second point for our time today, and that's that God frees his community of faith to proclaim his salvation. As I mentioned earlier, God doesn't free his people to just wander around aimlessly. God frees his people on purpose. And one of those specific purposes is proclaiming his salvation, proclaiming his victory. And that's what we see here with Moses. Moses was faithful to proclaim God's victory and Jethro converted to worshiping God. Even though Jethro wasn't an Israelite, he believed and worshiped the God of Israel. And this shows us so, something so important about the God that we serve even in the Old Testament. The Bidiani Buile, a pastor in Washington, D.C., he puts it this way. He says, Jethro is an early indication that God has a plan to win every nation. So Jethro, as a Midianite, was what the Bible calls a Gentile, which simply means that he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't technically part of the old covenant people of God. And by the way, unless you have Jewish heritage, that would be you and I as well. Uh, However, God's plan throughout the entire Bible was to have for himself a people from all peoples, from every nation. God said to Abraham in Genesis that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this plan to have a people from all nations is made possible ultimately through Jesus. The fulfillment of that promise to Abraham was Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus Christ made a way for those who were far from God to be reconciled to God through faith. And today we know that the church is God's people. After Jesus left, he gave his disciples the mission to make more disciples of all nations. And the universal church across all times and all places is the people from a people from all nations that God has gathered for himself. And the mission of the church as a whole, but also for individual local churches, is to proclaim God's salvation like Moses did. So God frees his people to proclaim his victory. So maybe you're newer to the church or maybe you grew up in church, but you really didn't know what it was about. The purpose of the local church is very multifaceted. We see that in the New Testament. It means a lot of things. But one of the purposes is to carry forward the mission of God, to proclaim the salvation that God has brought to us through Jesus. You know, earlier I referenced Matthew 28. and I talked about how Jesus said he is with us always. But as I mentioned right before that, Jesus actually gives us the mission of the church. 
He says we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. So the mission of the collective people of God is to make disciples, to make more followers of Jesus. To say it another way, the church is God's plan A in disciple making, and there is no plan B. Our mission as the church is to make disciples, and we do that through individually proclaiming God's victory by proclaiming the gospel. And exactly what we see here with Moses. Moses experiences God's salvation through Israel being freed from slavery, and then he shares that with Jethro. And really, this is a consistent theme in the Bible. In the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms, if you read those, we see this constant flow of experiencing God's salvation, or even just remembering God's salvation, and then in turn declaring the goodness of God through his salvation. And then in the New Testament, we see this idea that I just mentioned. The church experiences the salvation that Jesus offers, and then in turn they go and they proclaim it. And even if, you aren't, even if you're newer to the church, this idea should not be hard for you to understand because this idea is really pervasive in all of life. Take, for instance, the city of Chicago and their beloved Chicago Cubs. Uh, for any of you who have any awareness of baseball history, you'll know that from the early 1900s until the year 2016, the Chicago Cubs had won exactly zero World Series championships. That was the longest championship drought in all of sports. But in 2016, that streak was finally broken. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series and the people of Chicago lost their minds. Uh, there was rioting in the streets celebrating the win for days. Uh, I saw videos of 80- or 90-year-old Cub fans crying. I mean, men and women who had been fans of the Cubs for 80 years, never seeing their team win, they finally win and they burst into tears. I mean, again, it was unbelievable the response to the Cubs finally winning the World Series. But the idea there is simple. Here is this team that essentially stands in for them, that stands in for the city of Chicago and wins for them. And the response to that victory is proclaiming the victory literally shouting from the rooftops. But Christian, in an even greater way, this is our story. Jesus Christ stood in our place and won the ultimate victory over sin and death when we were his enemies. And the proper response for that victory is praise and proclamation. And so my question for our church this morning collectively, but also for each of us today individually, is this. Are we a people marked by the salvation of God in such a way that we can't help but share it? Like has experiencing God's salvation made you into a person that cannot help but share it with others? If not, I would invite you to consider whether or not we've missed something here because we cannot experience the salvation of God and remain quiet. One of the purposes of the Christian life is to proclaim God's salvation, to proclaim his victory like Moses does here in Exodus 18. And so that should challenge us individually to consider whether or not we are people who share the gospel. But also, if you're newer with us, maybe you're joining us online or even just as a reminder, this gives you a window into who we are as New City Church. At New City, we have a very simple vision we say often the New City Church exists to see Jesus change lives and to reach the world. Our church was founded on the idea that proclaiming God's salvation is a must. It's one of the purposes of us even being a church. And so if you've been coming around for a few weeks, uh, you're going to see that invade everything that we do. We take very seriously personal evangelism, and so we encourage one another towards that. And we hold one another accountable to be living missionally in our D groups. But also... As the second half of our vision statement says, that extends outside of Tampa Bay and into the rest of the world. We're a church that wants to multiply churches in the United States, but also internationally. And so we have partners as we speak in South Asia that are, that are seeking, that we support, that are right now seeking to train uh, and raise up pastors and future leaders and plant churches in, in South Asia. And so our hope is that anyone who joins us here will quickly see that we take evangelism, discipleship, and missions very seriously. And we take it seriously because as we've seen today, God has not freed his people without purpose. God frees us on purpose. And one of those purposes is proclaiming his salvation. But there's one more observation 
about God's community of faith and freedom that I want us to see today. And so let's finish up chapter 18. Look at verses 13 to 27. It says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people of all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So we're going to stop there. So the next day after Jethro worships God, we saw that in verse 12, uh, we see this next scene. Moses sits down to do what he's apparently been doing since the Israelites have been in the wilderness. He allows all the people to bring their disputes, to bring their cases to him so he can judge them according to God's law. And Jethro sees this, and he very bluntly, in verse 17, says, what you are doing is not good. It's very blunt. I love it. Uh, he points out that this burden of judging every dispute and case from all the people, it's far too much for just Moses to bear alone. And as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think about the musical Hamilton. Um, Hamilton was recently released on Disney+, Plus, and it feels really like the entire country has watched this thing maybe five times based on the amount of social media posts I've seen about it. Uh, but if you're, if you're not familiar with the musical, it tells the story of Alexander Hamilton, who is one of the United States founding fathers. And it partially tells the story of the Revolutionary War, and then it focuses on what the couple decades after the war were like as the nation was kind of being formed. Uh, and my favorite character in the musical was King George. Uh, I don't really know what that says about me, but it is what it is. Uh, but I bring him up because after the U.S. wins the Revolutionary War, King George, he comes out and he sings his second song. Uh, and here are some of the lyrics from it. He says, what comes next? By the way, I'm not going to sing, but he says, what comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? So he's pointing out the reality that leading is often more difficult than everyone makes it out to be. And of course, the point is, he's kind of making fun of the founding fathers. But I bring that up because that feels like what's happening here. God has just freed Israel from slavery in Egypt, and now here's this nation of nearly two million people wandering through the wilderness, figuring out what it means to follow God and be a nation. And so when Jethro comes to Moses here and says, what you were doing is not good, he's pointing out that the, the fact that to, for there to be good and healthy leadership in Israel, Moses is going to have to share the load. He's going to have to share the burden. Again, think about it. There's an estimated two million people here that make up the nation of Israel. So Moses very well could have been mediating the disputes of maybe hundreds of thousands of people every week. But Jethro, in wisdom, not only exposes the problem, but gives a potential solution. He instructs Moses to appoint godly men to help judge the people alongside of him, to lessen the load. 
In verses 22 and 23, they actually show us the benefit of doing this. Look back there. It says, And let, the, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will also will go to their place in peace. And so Jethro tells Moses, if you do this, it's going to allow you to be healthy and not burn out. And it's also going to benefit all the people. They're going to be able to return to their place in peace. And then in verses 24 to 27, we see that Moses listens to the instruction of Jethro and begins appointing other godly men to help lighten the load. So the question is, right, what is this all about? Well, remember again, first off, that Israel is a newly reestablished nation. So for the past 400 plus years, as I've said, they've been in slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. And so here God is using Moses' Gentile father-in-law, Jethro, to help shape Israel into a healthy nation. And that actually brings us to our third observation, our third point for our time today, that's that God frees his community of faith to be healthy. Again, let's look back at some of the language that we see by, used by Jethro here. In verse 19, we see that if nothing changes, Moses and the people will become worn out. We also see in verse 19 that the bearing this responsibility is not to be done alone, but it's to be done in community. And then, of course, in verse 23, we see that if they do make some changes, this will be for the good of Moses and for all the people. They'll bear the burden together. And so all of this language here, it shows us the idea of being a healthy nation, being a healthy community of faith. So the reality is God's desire is for his people to be a healthy people, not to be those who are spiritually or emotionally burnt out. And so as we bridge this again to our context, we can see some pretty obvious connections here between the, uh, the Old Testament nation of Israel and the church today. So even though this is specifically talking about having leadership in the people of Israel, uh, as we bridge it to our context for today, for today, it has less to do with government and more to do with leadership in the church. Because like we said, the church now is the people of God. And so this third observation that I pointed out is true for us today as well. God frees his people, the church, to be a healthy community of faith. And so again, I want to address those of you who are, who are newer here. But again, this is still a good reminder for those of us that are committed to New City. But if you've noticed today, all of these observations that I've made today are about a collective people, not necessarily just individuals. Yes, God is with us individually. Yes, God, uh, we individually share about God's salvation. However, each of these observations today show us the necessity of being part of the people of God, the church. And so my challenge to you today is if you are not committed to a local church, is to find a church and commit. <laughs> Whether you're here, you happen to be joining us online, it really doesn't matter. Uh, obviously, we'd love for you to jump in with us here. But honestly, it doesn't matter if it's here or another Jesus-centered, gospel-centered church down the road. My plea to you this morning is to find a solid church and invest there. The reality is, is there is no framework in the Bible for a solo Christian. In our Western culture, we love the ideas of individualism and consumerism. But unfortunately, that can slip into the hearts of Christians, leading to something that I've heard called church shopping. The idea is you attend a church for a couple weeks, you find a small problem there, so you move to the next church, find another problem there, and on and on and on, and there's never any deep community or commitment form. But again, that's a Western idea. That's an American ideal, not a biblical one. In fact, in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you might be familiar with it. Uh, but if you don't know anything about that book, it's a, it's a fictional book that's written uh, from the perspective of a, of a kind of a mentor demon writing to a junior demon about how to get people to hell. And in one of the letters, Screwtape, the mentor demon, uh, tells Wormwood, the junior demon, that this idea of church shopping is a great way to distract a Christian from actually being a Christian. Here's what he says. Put it up on the screen. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. 
So do you get what he's saying here? The most dangerous thing besides not being involved in church at all is to be the type of person who doesn't commit to a local church but church shops. Now to be clear, I'm not saying that you should go to a church that preaches something false, preaches a false gospel. That's obviously good and right reason to leave and look for a solid church. However, as I mentioned, we often leave churches over much smaller things and we never commit, we never have any deep community form. And so if that's you, please consider the reality of what the Bible teaches. God has saved us into a community of faith. So please find a solid church and dive in. But back to the idea at hand here, we see through Jethro's advice to Moses in Exodus 18, some direct parallels, like I said, to the church in the New Testament. Specifically, look at the qualifications for leaders that we get here. Look at verse 21. It says, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. I don't know about you guys, maybe you caught this, but to me, this looks wildly similar to the qualifications that we get for pastors or elders in the New Testament. Titus chapter 1 says that pastors in the church must be God's steward, must not be greedy for gain, and must hold firm to the trustworthy word. And 1 Peter chapter 5 says that our pastors must shepherd the flock of God among them, not for shameful gain, but willingly. And so in the same way that Moses appointed men to help him lead the people, we see that in the New Testament, Jesus appoints multiple pastors or elders to lead the people of God in local churches. Ultimately, like Israel, the church is ruled by God, right? It's ruled by Jesus. But also like Israel, God uses under shepherds. He uses leaders, pastors to individually lead local churches. And just like Jethro says to Moses here, doing this, it allows the burden to be shared. It allows for there to be health in the people of God. But beyond even just pastors or elders, the New Testament shows us that each person within a local church plays a role in bearing burdens. In verse 22, Jethro says that Moses needs uh, help uh, in, bearing burden, in bearing the burden. Well, the New Testament, Galatians chapter 6, tells us that in the church, we are to bear one another's burdens. And so what that means is that each of us have a responsibility here. To say it another way, every member has responsibilities in the local church. Again, this is an important reminder about the necessity of being involved in the church. Because if you aren't, you can't live out the command to bear one another's burdens. In fact, if you aren't invested in a local church, you can't live out the majority of the commands of the New Testament. There are around 60 one another statements in the New Testament that talk about how to love and serve one another in the church. Commands like love one another, build one another up, serve one another, and like I mentioned, bear one another's burdens. So the New Testament seems to make very clear that you can't really live out the majority of the Christian life if you are isolated from the local church, if you're not involved. And so again, if it seems like I'm pushing you very hard today to be committed to the church, I'm doing that because the Bible does that. But secondly, we also need to consider these things practically. As we've seen, God's people are not freed for no reason. We're freed on purpose. And one of those purposes is to be a healthy community of faith. And so my question to us today is this, is what we're doing on a daily or weekly basis, is it contributing, if you call New City your home, is it contributing to New City Church being a healthy church? That's a hard question. I've wrestled with it myself, but it's important for each of us to consider. To be a healthy community of faith, we need to be unified and bear one another's burdens, not divide and gossip. You could say it like this, a healthy church is marked by bearing burdens. A healthy church is marked by coming along one aside, alongside one another in our D groups and praying for one another, encouraging one another and holding one another accountable. In fact, in our groups this week, we're going to study John chapter 17, where Jesus actually prays for his disciples and he prays for the church. And one of the things that he prays for his disciples is that they would be one as he and the Father are one. And so in doing that, Jesus demonstrates the seriousness of the unity that he's calling us to have in the church. We are to be one in the church. We are to be unified as the Father and the Son are one. 
Think about that. We're going to fall short of that, right? But God has empowered us to take steps in this, to do this through the gospel. Of course, the power to do this, it comes from Jesus himself. Because when we comprehend that Jesus Christ came and he bore the burden for us when we were his enemies, how could we look to our brother and sister and say, figure it out yourself? How could we look at them with a cold heart and say, your opinion doesn't matter to me or your opinion doesn't matter here? No, instead, in light of what Jesus has done for us, we can enter into one another's pain or mess. We can do as Philippians chapter 2 says, we can in humility consider one another more important than ourselves. So y'all, I pray this daily for our church. I really do. That we'd be a healthy people marked by humility, love, and bearing burdens. The reality is we live in a, a divided cultural moment. We all feel that. And we desperately need to live this out. Just a moment ago, I showed us that we should be those who bring others into the community of faith by sharing the gospel. But the reality is, if we're going to bring others into a healthy community of faith, that means that we first actually have to be a healthy community of faith. The church has the ability to show the greatness of the God we serve if we, if we walk in humility and love with one another during this culturally divided time. And I'm excited for the sermons that are coming in the weeks to come about this. But as we finish up today, I want to close out our time this morning by recapping everything that we've discussed because I know that we've covered a lot of ground. In Exodus 17 and 18, we've seen that God freed his people Israel on purpose that he remained with them in the wilderness, that he freed them to proclaim his salvation and that he has freed them to be a healthy community of faith. And in the same way, we've seen that our freedom as Christians through Jesus, it serves a bigger purpose than just ourselves. He's freed us on purpose together. And so my question is, which of these areas do you need to be comforted or challenged by this morning? If you're feeling alone, feeling like you're trying to be a Christian on an island, first remember that God has not abandoned you. The same God that saved you remains with you. The Holy Spirit of God is living in you at this moment and Jesus is right now interceding before the Father for you. And also, remember that God has saved us to a community of faith. We're not due to the Christian life in isolation. Next, if you've been lacking missional urgency, if you look back the last few months and you see apathy towards declaring the salvation of God, I would invite you to begin praying what Psalm 51 says, where it says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because when we are joyous over God's salvation, we'll be those who share it. And lastly, are we contributing to New City being a healthy community of faith? Are we marked by grumbling pride and divisiveness? Or are we marked by humility and bearing burdens? You know, in just a moment, we're going to sing the old hymn, How Great Thou Art. And in the second verse, it gets at the heart of this idea. It says, When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Brothers and sisters, he bore our burdens on the cross. How could we not bear with one another? God has freed us on purpose. We need him. We need each other. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're we're thankful that you have not abandoned us, that you remain with us. God, we thank you that you freed us to proclaim your salvation. God, we thank you that you freed us to a community of faith to be healthy with one another. God, I pray that we'd be marked this week by bearing burdens. God, would you empower us to do this through the gospel? In Christ's name, amen.